While we make every effort to broadcast the correct information, we are still learning and by no means are White Coat Warriors hosts or guests acting as healthcare physicians or professionals. We will double check the facts presented, but realize that medicine is a constantly changing and complex science and art. We are simply presenting our views and the views of others on our experiences in the healthcare system and will be as evidence-based as possible based on our own experiences. We welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical conditions in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall White Coat Warriors, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates with White Coat Warriors be responsible for damages arising from the use of the podcast or blog. Welcome back, Warriors. This is your host of the White Coat Warriors podcast, Rachel Bartholomew. And today I'm joined by a very special guest and longtime, you know, partner, friend, connector, researcher, all of the things. Netta Basir. Netta is currently an assistant professor at the Conrad School of Entrepreneurship and Business at the University of Waterloo and with a specific interest in social innovation organizational innovation and entrepreneurship. Netta is a unique guest on the podcast today because she's dedicated her work towards advocating and fighting for patients' rights at work instead of the doctor's office. Very, very important, especially when it comes to invisible illnesses. Netta, thank you so much for joining us today. I've known you for so long. I am kind of bummed I never got you as a professor at Conrad as I did go to Conrad, but I have heard nothing but amazing things. So I am just happy to, always happy to chat with you. Thank you so much, Rachel. I'm super excited to be here. You are, you know, my first podcast experience and I can't imagine a a better person to do it with. I feel like you're one of the first people I met Conrad, even though you weren't a student there, we were working on other women innovation related stuff. That's super cool. So thank you so much for having me. I I think it's great that I get to be here and kind of share and talk about a topic that I've uh, become really interested about kind of uh, professionally and personally. A little bit about me. So as you mentioned, I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo. Interestingly enough, I did my undergrad and my master's degree in molecular biotechnology something a lot of people don't know about me. I worked for Big Pharma for a while and a startup in the pharma industry for a while, and then decided I wanted to go back to school and venture into um, research at academia, but in a business setting. I was really interested in um, in the business aspect of pharma. And let me tell you, like I, I went in thinking I wanted to study innovation and patent management and entrepreneurship and ended up becoming really interested in inequality. And I think that was just kind of from my own experiences as, you know, a one, um, an identifying woman, um, a visible minority, a mother in academia, like all these things compounded together. And as I was experiencing work and just other things in my life, I became really interested in this idea of inequality at work, especially as it manifests through, through gender. Yeah. So now my research looks at various aspects of inequality, especially related to, to entrepreneurship and, and women at work. Amazing. And you've kind of just stayed in that sphere for your entire career. And I'm sure you've probably jumped like 
place to place? Where have you kind of been throughout your journey professionally? And then maybe we'll dive in a little bit into your personal experience as well. Yeah. So, so I initially got interested in, in inequality because I was working with non-for-profit organizations during the Arab Spring. So this was like back in 2011 and I was building a non-for-profit organization to help with the, the revolution and the conflict that was happening in Libya, which is where um, I was actually born. And I have very strong connections too. And what I became involved with was this, this movement towards creating civil society in Libya. So Libya was under this like extreme dictatorship regime. They went through this revolution. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're working towards a democracy and all these non-for-profits started to show up and these women's rights groups. And I started to get involved with them and I wasn't really doing the work I was supposed to be doing as a PhD student. And my supervisor, you know, she's asking me like, how's the progress going? I was like, listen, I'm really busy with other stuff. And this is, this, this is like really amazing time. This is really important. And she was like, this is the coolest type of innovation out there. This is like social innovation at such a macro level. Go study that for your thesis. So I ended up studying um, the women's rights movement post-conflict and how these, you know, women advocates and these women entrepreneurs were really trying to build a space for them. So that's kind of how I got into that space. And, you know, very much related to entrepreneurship and being in this like really cool ecosystem in Waterloo, I started to, to get interested in entrepreneurship. And as I was working with students, a lot of the, the women identifying students would come up to me and they'd share some of their stories. You know, for example, I had one student who was like, during my team meetings, I was always the one that would take notes. I was always the note taker. And I'm like, that's not cool. I, another student I talked to won some funding and it took her six months to cash that check. And when I asked her why, she said, well, I always felt that I was the token winner and they gave me the money because I was the only woman that was pitching. You know, and stories like that got me really interested in gender inequality and entrepreneurship. And then fast forward, and I think this is where we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about, I, I heard about, you know, someone's experience with infertility at work. And I was like, hey, we need to, we need to look into this. So, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So far with my research, a little bit all over the place, yeah. but really just around inequality. Like, I really, like, inequality bugs me. It bugs me a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested to know you know, based off of the women's rights movement and stuff that happened in Libya, was there any specifics around, I mean, you know, not just politics and not just education or anything that was kind of, you know, a part of that. What specifically on the healthcare front did you see there? I'm kind of diving into a little bit of that research. That's a really interesting question. Um, I think it comes up a lot in terms of like just advocacy, right? And women just really taking control of their own bodies. So, so Libya is a very um, conservative country. It was run under a dictator regime. And I think prior to the revolution, women, a lot of women left it to the men in their lives, right? To take them to appointments, to, you know, really be the leaders when it came to their own health. And I think the, this women's social movement wasn't just about being involved in politics or getting, you know, education. It was really about women saying, hey, like, you played a big part in this revolution. We have shown leadership. We are empowered. And I think empowerment plays a huge role in, in, in women taking control of their lives health-wise, too. So, yeah, I think it's all, it's all related. I really do. Very interesting. Yeah, most definitely. And I think a lot of, unfortunately, I feel like politics seems to always get caught up in a lot of healthcare and how we distribute healthcare and 
all of that. So I think it's very fascinating. It's fascinating to learn religious and cultural aspects to it as well that really impact a lot of this. Absolutely. And who's making the decisions, right? And I think that's the big thing is like with with this movement and show women in Libya really showed the world that they can make decisions on their own and they made incredible decisions. And that includes, you know, decisions related to their to their health too. And yeah, so we have even just the involvement of women politically, I think, plays a huge role in women's health, right? Like they have an advocate at that level. So it's it's all related. It really it really is. So interesting. So interesting. I think that's I think that's everything, whether it's starting a company and, and having VCs at the table that are women all the way to, you know, working in a lab and making sure that you have women that you can you can talk to in, in a workplace or in somewhere where it may be male dominated. But we still have a long way to go. Yeah. And that's, you know, <laughs> that's the, the sad truth that as much progress as we made, we do have a really long way to go. We really do. Yeah. 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 But that's why our work is so important, Rachel, right? Yeah. Like it really like, <laughs> like the need for, for more work in this area. It really does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And I want to dive in. I mean, research in itself is is so fascinating and, and you're right in the thick of it working out of the university. Even research in these areas, I find, is so lacking on all aspects. I mean, in healthcare, especially not just the formalities of healthcare and we're seeing what's happening across the border and all of these things that is just seems like sometimes we're taking a step back in the formalities, let alone the actuals of like, what do women go through as a health experience is, you know, really hasn't been largely tested or researched properly. Right. And so I'm so interested to dive into kind of some of the things that you've seen along the way, but You've worked a little bit on something called infertility and work lab project with Serena Sorab is her name? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Dr. Serena Sorab. Yeah. Yep. You've uh, you've interviewed more than 40 professional women about how infertility and the treatments involved with that impact their work. Talk to us a little bit about that work. Yeah, I would love to. And and I first I should add so something that I've noticed in terms of management scholarship, which I think lends to hopefully a change or a shift in, you know, in other areas as well, is that there is definitely a lot more interest in this area. So I'll give you an example. So our biggest journal in management is the Academy of Management. Last year, and this is like mainstream management literature, like around innovation and patents and psychology, like it's, it's really mainstream. They had an article about breastfeeding at work. And I like, I don't think I know one single management scholar who didn't open that issue of this journal was like, what? Breastfeeding at work is the title for like such a mainstream business journal. So I think there, there is a shift and that's because, you know, there's more women in the workforce. Everyone's talking about the importance of diversity and inclusion. And we understand that, you know, to, to really the, the importance of like inclusive workplaces. So I'll start with that, that I honestly, like I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist, Rachel. I really do think that things are changing for the better, even though in some areas of the world, down south, for example, it feels like that's not the case. But yeah, we just need to keep fighting. But yes, let me talk to you about the infertility and work lab. Javier, I have three boys, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 5-year-old. So yes, I'm busy. I, I've never experienced infertility. So it was relatively kind of straightforward how, how these boys came into my life. But I was meeting with my collaborator, um, Serena, um, over lunch. We were, we were, you know, 
touching base and just catching up. We did our PhD together. And she was telling me about her experience. And her experience was very different from mine. And she was telling me about, you know, four years of, of infertility that she went through and, you know, going through this with work and the impact that it had on her work and her frustration with how when she was looking for answers about what she was experiencing, she couldn't find in the management research or any research, right? Like, so there's a lot of research on the effect of infertility on uh, people's emotions, on their well-being, um, on stress levels, but nothing about like, how, how do women do this while working? And for those, you know, like I, I just started to really understand what treatments are like. They get pretty grueling. They are, you know, they encompass quite a bit of work, like early morning appointments. You're, you're constantly being checked. You know, there's different procedures that you can take on. It's a rolling treatment plan, depending on how your body responds. You go in for some from diagnostics or some tests in the morning, you get a phone call in the evening. Okay, you need blood work here. Like it is, you know, some women refer to it as a second job. So it's intense. Imagine doing this while working. So she's telling me about all of this. And I go to her and I'm like, well, why don't you study this, Serena? Like if, if there isn't anything out there, we, we, we should study it. And one of the things that really resonated with me was my own experience with, with a miscarriage during my first year of work. So a few months after we met Rachel, I went through what felt like was a really kind of long and painful miscarriage. Now, I, I had two healthy kids at the time, so I'm really not equating my experience with, you know, Serena's at all or other women going through infertility. But, you know, I remember being in the office. And if you remember, Rachel, the offices that we were in before were all glass and you can see right in through each so yeah, and Rachel's nodding her head. Um, I remember, you know, being at my desk, getting a call from my doctor and telling me they, they couldn't hear a heartbeat. I was 10 weeks in. I remember calling my husband right away and telling him, I need you to pick me up. I don't think I can drive home. And just praying to God that no one would see me through those windows. No one knew I was pregnant at the time. And, you know, those were like the longest 15 minutes of my life. And what happened afterwards, so first of all, even though I know like miscarriage was really common, I had no idea what the experience was like. None of my girlfriends, no one told me what the actual experience of it was like. I feel like I'm getting off topic, but we're going to get back to the infertility work lab in a minute. And so for probably about three months, it was, you know, an emotional roller coaster, but also a physical roller coasters. I was experiencing this and I, I, I was taken to emergency two times during that time. One time I'm at emergency at 3 a.m. in the morning and I realized while I was in uh, on the bed at Grand River Hospital that I was teaching the next day. And I'm like, who's going to teach my class? Shoot. So I emailed one of the profs, a wonderful colleague. And I'm like, listen, I have food poisoning. I'm at the hospital. Can you cover for me tomorrow? And they, they obviously and kindly said yes. And they covered for me. Next week, I go to class and the students are all joking and laughing about this food poisoning incident. And they're like, where was it? Which restaurant? We should avoid it. And here I am, you know, really fighting back the tears as I was experiencing this. And I didn't tell anyone, Rachel. And so I really resonated with, you know, Serena's story of like trying to manage these emotions and like the physical pain and the emotional pain and everything else in secret, right? In secret. Um, so that's what got me really interested in this project and really jumping on board with it, that like it resonated with me and it just it just felt like something, you know, we should be looking at it. We've interviewed 42 women and really just wanted to understand how they experienced these treatments while working. Like, how did they how did they do it? We found that like a lot of these women felt like it's a very lonely process. 
And it's lonely because people don't know for the most part. You know, some women share, but a lot of women just don't want to share. I remember one woman telling us she would have these early appointments and she would walk into work late all the time. And she always felt like she called it the walk of shame because she felt everyone was watching her, looking at her, judging her for why she was coming in late. And so, you know, women would tell us that, you know, sometimes they'd be in the office and they'd get the news, you know, that they lost the embryo or it didn't work out. And, you know, some of them got to go home. Others kind of held it in. One woman, I remember saying she went to the bathroom stall, cried, cried, cried. And then she went and presented her work at a meeting. And these are the stories that would come up. The other really interesting thing, and we, we had this theory. We had this theory that it had a significant impact on women's careers. So, you know, this, this big question of why don't we have leadership, top level C-suite leadership of women? Why don't we have enough representation? We felt that there was something there related to this concept too. And what we're finding is that a lot of women ended up postponing promotions, going for new jobs or projects because of these treatments. So there's definitely an impact on their career, but it's not also like depressing. We also found that this also made women um, feel like some of them refer to themselves as superhumans after going through this. Like it really brought in a lot of confidence to them that they could do anything. This was a hard thing they went through and they were able to do it. We asked women, we're like, how did this experience change or did it change the way you manage people or the way you work? And almost all of them said, I am a more empathetic leader. I'm a better teammate because I feel like I bring empathy into the work right now. So there's some, there's some really great things that come out of it, that come out of this very painful process. And for some women, work was a godsend, right? It allowed them to, you know, take their mind off of things and focus on something. So very different experiences that we really kind of explored. But what we know is that like huge impacts on work, huge impacts on work. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, oh, thank you for sharing your story. I think I I don't want to relate it because, you know, infertility, miscarriages, infertility from a medical perspective on my end, I feel like there's still that connection that we all go through of loss, right? And I'm interested to know based off of, you know, the women you talk to in your own experience, there's got to be that physical manifestation of this, right? And the physical impacts. And I mean, when I was looking at, at fertility treatments before, before cancer, like going in and getting a jab every day of drugs to the financial burden of it, to, like you said, that full-time job of it, and then you have to go and show face. That is a lot physically and mentally to go through. And that expectation is so high. And, and you wonder, is that our expectation? Is that the expectations of others? Is that the expectations of our male counterparts who will never understand what we have to go through, <laughs> right? What have you noticed in terms of kind of that physical, the physical side, as well as the mental side as, as commonalities? We label these as labors, in that there's these, you know, different types of labors that these women go through. And a lot of times we think of the physical labor, right? These jobs, the, the pain, the physical kind of, or going in and out of these appointments. Like there's a lot of physical aspects to it. There's also a lot of emotional labor, right? And that's just not the emotions of, you know, one day being really excited that you might be pregnant to the next day, realizing that you're not. Emotional labor, labor in terms of like 
managing others' expectations too. So one of the reasons women actually don't disclose is because they're like, if I get bad news, I have to deal with my own emotions. I don't want to deal with other people's emotions too, right? That, that, that takes a lot of work too. Guilt, and you pointed to this, this feeling of guilt of not performing at work. That is emotional labor, right? That I'm not going to take on this new project because what if I can't perform the way I used to perform and then I'm going to feel guilty or I don't want other colleagues to, you know, step in for me, that feeling of guilt. So there's a lot of emotional labor and then cognitive labor. And sometimes we forget that this, it takes a cognitive toll too. So imagine constantly being thinking about this all the time. So we talked to one academic who is a, a researcher and I forget which area, but she said, I'm good at researching. And instead of researching the topics that I was supposed to, I ended up becoming an expert on infertility. That's what I would spend my time on, right? Oh, and administrative labor. So imagine being on the phone all the time, trying to get your insurance to pay for these treatments. So these are all these additional labors, these additional works on top of your full-time job that, that many of these women are doing. And again, a lot of them in, in secret. No one knows that you're taking this all on. And it can be incredibly, incredibly draining. And the thing about infertility that I think is like really, I think, interesting and important, and I think makes this so much more complicated, Rachel, is that there's no certainty when it comes to timeline, right? It's not, so when you're pregnant, you're pregnant for nine months, people know what to deal with, they know what to expect. You can be going through infertility treatments for a few months, for some people, a few years, and for some people, you know, it never manifests um, successfully. And so imagine you, you keep needing to push things off as you're going through these different kind of labors. So it makes things like very, very difficult, very, very difficult. Yeah. yeah, that's so, that's so interesting. It's the jobs on top of the jobs on top of the jobs. And then, you know, at what point is it? It's interesting how it could almost, and I'm sure you've probably seen this manifest that you're almost working against yourself because the stress and the compounding effects of everything. Absolutely. The compounding effects, you, you've you nailed it. It is a compounding effect. And for some women, they, they tend to just be like, that's it. I can't, you know, a lot of women talk to us about that moment where they realize they're like, my body can't take this anymore physically, but mentally either. And I'm, and I'm done. Um, and on the other hand, you know, there are some women who like work was really a refuge, like it really like, and I think that's, what's really interesting about this research is no story is the same. I think there's some common elements. Yeah. It's, it's a different experience for, for everyone. It really is. I will tell you what we have found that's very common though. Disclosing to your boss, your manager, your colleagues has almost always been a positive experience. The women who did that did not regret doing it. However, the women who did that also did it because they felt supported at work. They either had, you know, a manager that they felt would get it, a lot of them because it was a, a women manager or someone very family oriented, or they somehow worked in an organization where they felt that they had their back. And so to us, that the, the writing's on the wall, right? It's like, even though these experiences all are, are all different, and unique, what we need to do is make sure that, you know, the organizations that we work in are conducive for, and like women feel supported in them. And that, I think that that's attainable. I think that is super attainable. Yeah, for sure. I want to, I want to stay on that point because 
it, it it's all about that environment, right? Like what what can others do to create and enable environments where women entrepreneurs, immigrant women entrepreneurs, not even entrepreneurs, your employees, your female employees, how can they um, create an environment that really supports and, and allows them to feel open enough to come in and talk about these things? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And we're like, we're really trying to untangle this. And there's a lot of work out there already on like what these supportive environments look like. In terms of I think, like women's health related issues, especially, I think flexibility is really important. And I know flexibility is like the buzzword right now with hybrid work and work from home. Every single woman we talked to, I think, said something about COVID being the best thing that happened to them because it gave them some flexibility in terms of their treatment. They didn't have to do all that hiding and secrecy, which is it takes a toll on you, right? It really does. And so it really speaks to the need for flexibility. And I'm not like advocating for, you know, work from home or anything. I'm just saying that like we, we need to give people some autonomy and some flexibility to deal with things when they come, because life is really messy women we know take on a lot more, um, whether it is responsibilities like of, of, of children, of elder parents, of their health concerns, they take on a lot more. We need to provide fl flexible workspaces. That's number one. Um, I think, you know, there's signals that organizations can send that say that they're supportive, like benefits or benefits related to this. Like no women should have to take vacation days to get treatments or because she had just gone through a miscarriage. Like that's ridiculous, but it happens in Canada. Many of the women had to take, because they went to their boss and their boss was like, you're out of sick days. You're going to have to get into your, your vacation days. She had just had a miscarriage. Like I'm not even making this up. Those are not supportive environments. I think this idea that we need more women in leadership positions and more women entrepreneurs, it's because part of it is this is a cascading effect. Women see these other women and they feel motivated that they can get there as well, but they also feel that that is someone that probably gets it a little bit more, right? And so we need to see more women on the top. And, you know, like a lot of these women said, they're like, I'm a more empathetic manager. I need empathy at that level. We really do. Finally, I think as women, I think we have a role in this too. I think we need to normalize these experiences, you know? menopause, menstruation, miscarriage, infertility. These are things that almost every woman will experience at least one of these in her life, but yet no one talks about it. No one's, I am an educated, young, fluent speaking English person. And I had no idea what a miscarriage experience was, right? Like we need to use these words. We need to talk about it and normalize these situations. And I think that that's something that we can all play a role in. So I think that's, you know, the first few steps of creating these supportive organizations. I think we can all play a role. I'm so glad you brought up, you know, menstruation and menopause and all these things, because like, these are natural things that our body goes through. We can't avoid it. And yet we have to grit our teeth and bear it. And I know there's there's even organizations that are doing like menstruation weeks off or a couple of days off and stuff like that. And it's starting to be a thing, but, and even menopause, I mean, women are what at the peak of their careers sometimes at menopausal state, right. And you're going through massive changes and you're expected to perform at your peak. I'm so glad you brought that up. And I think 
another thing I kind of wanted to dive into on top of all of that is, is pregnancy as well. Yeah. And post-pregnancy and having a child and society's pressure to, you have to be the mother and you have to be the caretaker. Now you're expected to go to work and be this superwoman, like you said, right? And I mean, you've, you've had kind of not infertility, but the miscarriage side in combination with the pregnancy and the childcare side as well. In your own experience, how has that transitioned and what were some of the similarities in those transitions for you through those different situations in your workplace? Oh, and it's so like, it's so crazy that they're kind of similar. Like the fact that like being pregnant with a child has some similarities to being infertile at work is crazy, but there are similarities. So, so Rachel, when I was pregnant with my third, I hid it for as long as possible. I hid I hid my second pregnancy when I was a PhD student, because I was worried that, you know, all the professors at the university would be like, okay, you had one baby during your PhD. That's fine. Whatever. Two are you a really serious academic? So I hid it for as long as possible. With my third, I was, you know, a professor at the university. I didn't think anything of it. And then when I started to share I, I was pregnant, I kept hearing, oh my gosh, I've never met a professor with three kids. And right away, you start to have kind of, if not imposter syndrome, but you're like, oh my gosh, no one's going to take me seriously as an academic anymore because I have three kids because clearly there's a misfit here. So you start to hide that, right? And the, the thing with pregnancy is you can only hide it for so long and then the cat's out of the bag. But yeah, and it's because, you know, we, and there, there's so much research in this area. Pregnant women get penalized. Mothers get penalized at work, right? There's there, there's no doubt about it. There is incredible discrimination targeted towards these women. And you feel it. Like, I remember I was at a conference and I was talking to someone and they were saying, first of all, at these conferences, all the crazy things happen. So I remember being at a conference once and someone pretty much saying, oh, you're so lucky you're a woman, you're going to get a job right away. Like as a PhD student, you know, the academic market's tough and this is like, right. How, how, how can I say, can I say shitty? Or are you going to beep that out? Yeah. Shitty. How shitty that, right? <laughs> I was like, that's not what you want to hear. And you know, years later, I'm back from mat leave and sounds like you're so lucky you got a year added to your mat leave for your tenure clock. And I'm like, dude, mothering doesn't stop after a year. Actually, it kind of gets harder. Like, yeah, the odds feel like they're against you sometimes as a woman at work. Like, I feel like we've changed in terms of the demographics of work, but the way we work and the way our, our companies are built don't match um, with, with, with the change of demographics. And this is why, like, I'm such a proponent of, like, women entrepreneurs, because I'm like ladies, you need to build it and build it the right way, right? Like, and be bold, innovative in how you build it. Like not just the products and the services you build, but how you actually build your companies, the DNA of the company. Think big, think different. The way we've been doing it doesn't work anymore. And so, you know, that's kind of my, 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 my innovation hat coming in that like, we need to be a bit more innovative and not just product innovation, but like, let's just think bigger at this point. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think, I think a lot of even big corporate can do a better job of, of that as well. Right. <laughs> but, and what's interesting is um, in the past few, like a few months, I don't know if you know this, but quite a few companies have started to introduce more infertility treatment benefits 
it gets really, I, I, I'm not going to name, I'm not going to name the name because I'm not hundred percent sure, but some of these really large is a uh, consulting firms have started to, to include benefits related to that. So, so, you know, it, th- th- there is some, there's some positive change for sure. Yeah. It's insanely expensive and you don't come to root cause or, you know, you're kind of exploring what, why this is happening to you. It can get really, really lengthy oh. and really costly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even like in Canada or in Ontario where some things are covered, it's, it's really not enough most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you've highlighted a little bit about what some of the workplaces can do to kind of change, create awareness in their own minds to, to some of these things, but what can women do specifically to advocate for themselves, feel more comfortable, feel comfortable about talking openly about their healthcare and their needs in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, and you know, like I, I talked about like just normalizing a little bit and being open to talk about it. So I'll give you an example. So my my brother um, and his wife became pregnant last year. They shared the news at, I think it was like three or four weeks. And I remember, you know, everyone's kind of like, like, gosh, like wait until 12 weeks, right? Because that's the norm. You wait until three months until you're out of the woods and then and then you share. And, and this was before I really got into this research. And he was like, uh, no, he's like, because, you know, if, first of all, this may not work out and if it doesn't work out, we need support and we need to make it okay that if it doesn't work out and, you know, and I, I think that's one step that we can take again, it's just normalizing this discussion. And I think that's the first step towards advocacy because when it becomes easier to talk about women feel more empowered. And the, and the thing is not every feels like she can advocate for herself and she can speak up and she can get a second opinion and she can come to her boss. But the more that we can do as a society to make it just a little bit easier, I think that's important. One of the things, like one of my biggest takeaway from this research, like personally, was the importance of being like your own self-advocate. Like you trust your doctors, you trust your friends, your coworkers, but you need to take control of your own health. If you feel there is something off, you go look into it. It sucks, but I feel like this is the only way. So because, and and the reality is, you know, we're all human. We all make mistakes. Doctors come sometimes misread things. They miscommunicate. Coworkers, people come in, you know, a lot of them very well-intentioned. But things don't always go a certain way. And the only person, the most important person to you is you. Like you have to, you know, and you you deserve it. And so for me, I think that's incredibly important that you just like trust your gut and keep going until you get the answers that you need and you exhaust everything possible. And you know what? And if that means leaving that position, then do it. Do what is good for you. I know not everyone has the luxury to do that, but if it's a toxic workplace, do do what's best for you. I think one of the things that women can do to help kind of enable that advocacy is to seek support groups or people in their network. So some women, um, some women actually felt that they couldn't talk to their friends or family members about this. And I get it, right? So you, all your friends are having babies, you know, how do you approach them with the situation that you're in? You know, someone would talk about, you know, telling people and they'd be like, go eat pineapples or go see this acupuncture. You know what I mean? And like, sometimes that's really not helpful. Um, but they found support through like, like online networks, for example, or maybe it was just one person who had experienced this. And that plays a huge role in getting through this and just kind of like enabling that advocacy. So 
those are some of the things that I would do at a, at a personal level. And this has been such a learning experience for me. It really has, as I hear these stories, some of them horror stories, um, and some of them like incredible stories of resilience is really this need to, to be your own advocate. I wanted to touch on the research aspect of this and I'm going to lump this question into kind of, you know, my what's next question for you in terms of the research. What are you looking forward to in terms of the research? What are you diving into currently or next or what's in the future? And what is some of the research that you want to see changed and you want to see more attention to, to highlight some of these big discrepancies and big gaps in, in research in all area of, of women's health, not just the specific health, but the workplace, the home, the relationships, the mental, the physical, all of these things. Tell me what's next and what are you excited for and what still needs more attention? Everything needs more attention, that's for sure. There's so much that that needs to be looked at personally. So so with this project, we're, we're publishing the results, results right now. We're trying to, to send them out. We've actually become really interested in um, identity. And I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get too kind of academic, but something that's interesting that really happens during this period is if you think of, you know, um, pregnancy, so you have these work roles or this work identity, and then all of a sudden you're pregnant and you start to transition into, you know, a work identity, but also a, a mother identity. And that's, you know, there's a lot of work in that area and it's, it's not straightforward, but we're, we're starting to understand it. With, with some of these, you know, we call them like concealable life events, you're transitioning and no one knows. And sometimes those transitions either never happen or you're in this liminal stage where you're neither here nor there. And I'm really fascinated about what that does, what work does to that kind of transitional identity and what the transitional identity does to work. So really getting into kind of these identity aspects. And I think this is all important because we're really starting to get through the weeds and really start to understand what exactly is happening. And I think if we understand these details, I think that's going to help us really understand how to create these, these better organizations. The other, the second piece for a project that we're working on right now is we're trying to understand how people perceive women who disclose their infertility. So we're kind of running experiments right now where women actually disco- disclose that they're either A, going through um, cancer treatments or infertility treatments and trying to understand how the person on the other end attributes their, their performance and their work based on these, you know, both serious life events, you know, in different ways and, and how, um, how managers react to that disclosure. And then the third part of this project that we're working on is actually want to quantify the impact. So our interviews tell us that women, you know, some of them don't seek promotions. Some of them don't switch jobs. They don't go on different projects. Can we actually understand, you know, what is the economical impact when it comes to work of women going through these. So again, going back to the numbers and all of this is, you know, kind of sucks. So it really is to build this case that like, hey folks, we need to do something about it. You know, another area of work that I do is around women immigrant entrepreneurs. And um, we just finished collecting some, some data around the role of incubators and support organizations. And the thing with women immigrant entrepreneurs, that's really, you know, fascinating, but also, you know, re- really really tough is that they're both women and they're immigrants, right? And we know, you know, women entrepreneurs, you know, their challenges because of, you know, our norms around entrepreneurship, 
immigrant entrepreneurs, similarly, like imagine being an immigrant woman entrepreneur and to understand that, that intersectionality. And again, going back to like what organizations can do about it. Like I am really focused on, you know, building organizations that can deal with these inequalities. And there's others who, you know, are, study things at the individual level. I'm, yeah, I think, I think the organizations are what need to change. hundred yeah. percent. It's really interesting too, because, you know, not just entrepreneurship uh, with women and, and immigrant women, but healthcare, I mean, healthcare, same sort of situation, right? And then layer in things like infertility, miscarriage, pregnancies, that type of thing. The, the challenges to overcome and the, the conditions and the way that we treat these women in healthcare settings, there's so much to do there. Is. There is. And the thing is like, the thing with health, and maybe this is why I've become so interested in this area is that it, there's implications for the rest of our, like the, the other aspects of our life, right? I think we tend to think of, you know, issues with our health as a, as a physical thing and it's personal. Well, it's, it's not just physical. And I think, you know, we know that, right. There's emotions and there's cognition and there's, it, it affects our social life. It affects our work life. And for most of us, we spend probably more time at work than we do at home. And so there's, there's, there's huge implications to what happens to us from a health perspective, um, to, to the workforce. So they're, they're so, they're so related. Yeah. And we're all humans at the workforce. You know, we always forget, and I've worked in that corporate ruthless environment before, and it's like, we're all humans. We all have things that we go through and you sometimes wish it's like, screw the corporate ladder and, and that whole, the politics side of it, like, these are humans you're interacting with day to day that are going through all of these things, right? It's, uh, yeah, very interesting. Very, 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 very interesting. It is. And, and you know, like the stuff around infertility, like people are like, well, I'm not interested in this. And I'm like, okay, but you know, this experience, it's actually very, you know, there's a lot of it that's similar to experiencing a really bad divorce or a child who has um, an addiction issue and you're hiding it at work and you're dealing with this mess outside of work. Like this happens to, this could happen to anyone or abusive relationship. Like, you know, the context is infertility, but the implications are just really kind of this nasty things that happen to us sometimes in life that we have to deal with and we try to conceal. And a lot of it affects our identity, right? And that bleed, bleed into work. So yeah, I think everyone needs to be paying attention to to research and, and, and what's going on in these areas. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Okay. Final question before the final, final question. I ask this of, the, of everyone. Uh, why do you think it's important for patients to take their health into their own hands? Because you deserve it. You you deserve it. You you need to advocate for yourself. And there's other aspects of your life that depend on you taking it into your own hands, on your own hands. And so you 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 really should. Like, and I really believe that, yeah, everyone deserves that. I think that's a basic need and a basic right and something that we should all just do. Yeah, if we can. And if we can't to get the support to do it. And for those of us who can't do it, those of us who can need to advocate for them. We really do. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Deserve it. You do deserve it. If you don't have your health, what do you have? Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Don't know if your research is something that others can partake in. But if so, or just 
learn about you in general? Where can they learn more about you, your work, and potentially maybe getting involved if they're interested? Oh, cool. Yeah. So um, Serena and I have a, a website, infertilityandwork.com. And there we have some stuff about our recent work. Um, we also have two Harvard Business Review articles that we wrote that people may find interesting. One is targeting towards employers and what they can do about, you know, supporting women in the workforce that are going through infertility or just women in general, because they may or may not know that they're going through it. The other article is um, for women themselves, whether you're going through it or you're thinking of family planning, stuff to keep in mind and stuff that we've learned from this research. So there's some, I think some, some helpful resources there and our contact information is there and I'm happy to, to chat and discuss with anyone um, who, who's interested. Amazing. We'll make sure to link all of that below, but thank you, Netta. Thank you for sharing such a personal story. And thank you for all of this work. I hope that this impacts every single workplace in some sort of capacity so that they could start to change because it's such a big piece. And we often forget that the workplace is, like you said, where we spend half of our day pretty much at, right? Other than bed and home. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's so important, but thank you for sharing. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being on the podcast. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. I am a big fan of the work that you do. So I'm the one that feels, you know, very um, grateful right now. And so I really appreciate you bringing me on and um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited about what the future holds. We have, we have people that are, are advocating for this, including you. So it was my absolute pleasure to, to spend the time with you. White Coat Warriors is a special presentation limited series from High IV Health. Are you experiencing pelvic health challenges? We're looking for participants for our upcoming focus groups. Sign up and learn more on how High IV Health is helping women down there and everywhere at highiv.com. You can also find us on social media at High IV Health to stay updated on our journey as we break the stigma on pelvic health.